Hello and welcome to Finding the Glitter in the Gold, a Lord of the Rings chat podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm Zoe. As always, we are discussing the works of John Ronald Rayul Tolkien, who was writing stories set in Middle-earth from 1937, when he was 45, up until his death in 1973, when he still hadn't made an internally consistent narrative. So, any mistakes we make with the facts are because we are making shit up, just like he did. But today, we are going to be talking about the movies a bit more than the books, uh, because this is going to be a pretty visual episode, a visual podcast episode. How have we become so oxymoronical? Yeah. (laughs) But it's okay. It's still worth talking about, so worth talking about, just because I have a deep-seated love for architecture and appreciation thereof, and the visual beauty of the movies is always worth talking about a little bit more. And I did a bunch of research, as we'll get to, and it's not just the movies that are visually architecturally intriguing Ooh, so Mm, there's more there too okay Mm -hmm. excellent i mean yes it was tolkien there's always a little bit more (laughs) it'll find another letter and it's like oh shit (laughs) new tangent you're like oh let's go down this route now yeah the movies can be a really good place to start because most people know them me as I've said before, my only experience with Lord of the Rings is the movies. So Which doesn't make sense to me because you love to read so much. I love books. I finished such a good one this morning. Everyone read Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Muir. We are not being paid to advertise. <laughs> no, but that would be nice. <laughs> hey, hey, Gideon the Ninth author, give us money. <laughs> Your book was so good. <laughs> I'm gonna. T- I like the premise of it. it. Has to do with lesbians and space and gothic stuff and gothic architecture and necromancy. So therefore, it's thematically part of this podcast. Sure. Yeah. Gothic <laughs> architecture. But anyway, yes. read the book. Yes. Anywho, so we're gonna start with the Lord of the Rings um, and the concepts designed in the film. So there's this really, really wonderful, wonderful Tumblr post found on Zobug, but it's by Overthinking Lord of the Rings. Overthinking L-O-T-R, technically. And the title of this is Lord of the Rings' concept artist designed the films as a, quote, journey back in time, end quote. And Overthinking L-O-T-R says, According to the concept art book, as the Fellowship travels deeper into Middle-earth, the places they pass through become inspired by progressively older periods of history. The farther along you are in the history, the more ancient the design influences. So we begin in the Shire, which feels so familiar because with its tea kettles and cozy fireplaces, it's inspired by the relatively recent era of rural England in the 1800s. And then there are some really, really cute pictures, not of the Shire, but of rural England in the 1800s, which looks almost exactly like the Shire. Yeah, and this makes sense too, because we, as we talked about in uh, the episode about Tolkien and Lewis, Tolkien-based bag end and everything off of his childhood growing up in the countryside. And the countryside of England, you know, that's near late 1800s, early 1900s, hadn't really changed much. So, yeah. Then, Overthinking LOTR continues, but when we leave Hobbiton, we also leave that familiar 1800s England aesthetic behind and start going farther back in time. Brie is based on late 1600s English architecture. Pan to a very Shakespearean-esque village street, followed by Brie, which look about the same. 
Yeah, they got them thatched roofs going on, which are now illegal in the confines of London because of the Great Fire. Yes, they catch a fire very easily. Too easily. Way too easily. I mean, thatch also has uh, been used or was used as roofing for centuries and centuries. Beowulf was actually described as having a thatch roof, the, the Harrods Hall. That's so cool. They can still do it, but you have, they have a lot of it. You have to have a special permit now to have a thatch roof. It's very great and durable and waterproof and awesome. I learned about it when we were in London. Oh, yeah. Wait, when we were there for theater? Yeah. How do you remember this? I was so tired that entire time. I am a monster. (laughs) I know. And I'm always tired. That's my secret. You just get used to it. Yes. Uh, Rohan is even farther back, based on old Anglo-Saxon era architecture, 400s to 700s approximately CE. And again, you have uh, an image of actual Anglo-Saxon architecture with thatch roof, A-frame houses. Um, it's very much made of timbers. It's kind of cool how it's similar to Hobbiton and that some of these houses are kind of buried. Right. For insulation. Um, you'll see some of these still around. I've seen them in Iceland as well. It's kind of just nice, a nice shed system so that you can keep yourself or your animals warm. And it's, you know, making use of the natural landscape without having to protect you. Yeah. Then the image of Medusild looks just about the same with the slightly less of an A-frame shape. It still looks more like you would think a church-like building would be with the A roof. And then it kind of goes out onto other uh, additions. The note that I would say is that um, all of the... 400 to 700 CE architecture from the actual real world where we live is wooden and the uh, Rohirrim is built in stone in this example. I think that's probably just like the the fanciest. Rohirrim is built of wood. Yeah, but this one looks like it's stone. Medusel is supposed to be built of timber. It has a stone base. Oh, yes. It's raised on like a stone dais kind of thing for the entire foundation to raise it above the rest of the village of the town. Oh, but, but like the actual building itself is? Yeah, the actual building itself is timber. The arches are throwing me off. That looks like stone to me. Maybe, maybe bits? I know that in, as we'll get into, in Lord of the Rings, it's built of wood. I believe you, um, yeah. Maybe so- they just added that because, I don't know, add some drama to it. But also, it kind of makes sense. If you're going to build like a big fancy hall, you're going to spend a little more time on it and work with stone to make it more durable, so. yeah. I could justify this. (laughs) We can justify anything. But the houses themselves, the smaller village houses, definitely look like some of the Anglo-Saxon architecture that this person has put real-life photos of. Yes. Uh, Continuing on, Gondor is way back and no longer the familiar English or Anglo-Saxon. Its design comes from classical Greek and Roman architecture. Along, It has the pillars, the columns. It is very much made of stone of different colors. It is very lofty. Um, the the pillars are have intricate designs at the top, much like a Dorian or Ionic pillar would. Ionic or Corinthian, Dorians are super boring. Merd, why did I get the wrong one named? Okay. Sorry. Thanks for correcting me. <laughs> There's also these inset places that you'll see in churches where you have like saint statues or something like that. And they have the same sort of thing happening in Gondor. Uh, they also have the multicolored stone stuff, which is a really yeah. cool thing that the Romans were working with, where they'd get different colors of stone and kind of make these checkerboard patterns or offset uh, to make it look more dramatic. It was really cool. Which they do in the Citadel of Ecthelion, as we see in these photos, they do have that kind of checkerboard pattern. 
again, also, I get probably more in reference to Greek and classical Roman are the marble sculptures set within the inlaid dais. Um, uh, what, what did you call them? Uh, I don't know. I, maybe like shelf things. Sh- yeah, shelf things. Big shelf things. Big shelf things. There's definitely like big, big statues that look like they're carved from marble. I know. Someone who's a little more knowledgeable than me about classical sculpture could probably say something about the, like, expressions indicating a certain time period. I know there was changes in how you depicted um, people in statues mm-hmm. for a while. There it was just, like, very much an upright pose because that was super easy to do. And then they started getting, like, kind of slouchy and, like, their hips would pop out and it looks a little sexy. And, and they were trying to, like, imitate more natural human form and how can they show the muscles and the movement of a body. Yeah, but this one we've got a fully covered dude who just looks like a king, and he's standing real straight, being a king. He does have a lot of like intricate carving of the uh, like cloth, which I think was another era of statue. Was like when they started to try and make the cloth look very natural and realistic too, and conform Mm -hmm. to the bodies. There's some really amazing. And and they're still coming out with it. I've seen some great sculptures made by contemporary artists where the way that the cloth moves with the body is very important. And you also got some sculptors who were so good, they could even, if their people were naked and they were like holding on to each other, you could see the dimples and flesh where they were holding on to each other. And that's some, that's some sexy stuff right there. Also just so intricate. Beautiful work. Far, far, far back as we continue on is Mordor. It's a land of tents and huts, prehistoric, primitive, primeval caveman times. Um, They don't have any, obviously they don't have any photos of real life cavemen compared to Mordor. But, you know, they definitely have the live animals hung over a spit made of a piece of wood, a branch, Mm -hmm. and all the the rock and the, the torches and the lack of shelter, the lack of any real architecture frankly. Yeah, it's very transient, which I think is interesting, because I don't know if that's necessarily primitive. Um, Right. There were a lot of societies that were heavily based around being very mobile, and you can have some pretty intricate yurts. I think this is very much trying to evoke a culture that doesn't care about where they live, because they're gonna go out and murder. Um, Like, it feels more like a war camp, like a per, like a not semi permanent war camp. That's what it is. That's the army of Mordor right there. You have these towers built. Um, I just remember like Sam saving Frodo from one of the towers, yeah, um, where he's been taken in the extended edition, and those were built pretty crudely but well. I mean, they for the most part held together, and these people have trebuchets and siege towers and stuff like that. So yeah. I was going to argue against their description of it as being primitive or caveman. Yeah. Um, also, like, the Tower of Baradur itself is a feat of engineering with that, like, black obsidian stone and the amount of mm. sharp, pointy bits that yeah. entire length. And then there's the, the tower that Frodo gets rescued from is, like, in the movie. It's also this other pretty impressive-looking tower, again, made of black stone. So that's not something that, like, a caveman would have made because... They would have found a cave and settled right. there. And we Precisely. Would have some, we've gotten some cool cave paintings, like, orcish cave paintings would have been neat to see. Right. I mean, we still have some of those cave paintings where people just have, like, a lot of emotions about the hands on the wall and the way that they've drawn buffalo and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but that's not present in this, obviously. But it could be. It could be. We don't know. <laughs> maybe they, maybe the orcs were trying to make art. Yeah, maybe uh, eventually when the tower falls and all of that shit uh, and the orcs have to live with the world, they invent the pulled pork sandwich and they start doing some wall art. <laughs> Full circle. They're really actually just like artists in the kitchen. Oh, God, Because yes. they were in a war camp and they wanted it all to taste good at some point. So they got creative. Yes, I love this. <laughs> I'm trying to think of what civilization... Barador and the tower remind me of hmm. nothing is really coming to mind in terms of like a real life counterpart in terms of architecture yeah I think of um gothic cathedrals honestly like they're very pointy a lot of spikes flying buttresses all that sort of thing where it's very intimidating looking designed by people who want you to feel a sense of awe, but it's not inviting at all. It's not like a, a, a meeting space. That's the interesting thing about the towers, I think, now that I'm talking about it. It's yeah. not a space for meeting. And a lot of the places that we see in Lord of the Rings and other cultures and locations are spaces to hold great feasts or to have large meetings or something like that. Rivendell, all of that sort of thing. It's very open plan. They don't have anything about Rivendell in here, and I'm kind of excited to talk about that just in general. But yeah. The, the one thing that struck me as different from gothic was the type of stone they used the fact that it does look like mm. obsidian mm -hmm. um and it's just like razor sharp like yeah that, like the, yeah that is such a good detail um because they're in a volcanic area so obsidian would be plentiful like that is mad props to the designers for realizing maybe it's not shouldn't be mad props it's their job but realizing the location affects what you're able to use in designing something um that just makes it blend so much better and creates a much richer world i think if you're thinking about what kinds of materials are available to these people and i know that they based a lot of their designs in the movie off the illustrations done by alan lee um and i have oh. the the trilogy that has all of his art in it he does some beautiful watercolor work um and he worked with them, honestly. He was one of the, the designers and creators. And in his illustrations, again, Barador is made of that, that same rock. That's where he came from. This is a quick, uh, this is a good quick segue here. I found another article from Overthinking LOTR about um, how Lord of the Rings special effects were influenced by watercolors and this guy's watercolors specifically. It was just really a very good design choice to decide not to make Lord of the Rings look entirely realistic, not to push it to like the furthest limits of uncanniness with our own world, but to have a very specific idea of what you want it to look like based on a painting. So it has this artistry to it in these shots um, that were designed by Alan Lee's watercolor paintings. Uh, they have examples in this post about what the Mines of Moria look like, oh, which again yes. are very column-based and they actually look more uh, like the Renaissance than um, Roman times because they have these huge arches, which were um, only able to be created during the Renaissance. But there's a, p a picture by Alan Lee of the columns of Moria and those arches and a single beam of light shooting down and the luminous 
illuminating these very dark, uh, close space that somehow still has the sense of huge height to it. And then they show some examples from the movie of the shots of Moria and you have Gandalf's light, the only thing illuminating it. And they're walking down these huge stone column lined, um, just rows of emptiness. And I can't actually imagine what this would look like swarming with dwarves. I, I can't imagine what this space was used for, which is really interesting. Um, because I've, I've taken an architecture class on how you design a space to either invite people or to reject them. There's hostile architecture, which is where you're putting spikes under bridges so that people who are currently homeless can't stay there. And then there's also designing spaces that are too big so it's uncomfortable to walk through them. And this to me is kind of like one of those spaces where it just looks unnerving to be there. It doesn't look homey, it looks impressive. And this is supposed to be the back doorway into Moria. Totally. This is like the mud room. <laughs> the mud room of Moria. But maybe that's also part of why it's not very hospitable looking. It's not really meant to be lived in as much. Yeah. Is it designed then purely to impress people or make them uncomfortable as they're moving through the space to go on to a meeting or something like that? I don't I know. I guess it would be to impress. Yeah. I guess if it's lit, it would probably be a little bit more... Um, impressive as it is it's so shadowed and gloomy and silent that it's pretty unnerving for them to walk through which is a really great choice for the precursor to an ambush um, and they also have an example of Alan Lee's painting of uh, what was that hilltop I'm on hen I'm on weather top yeah weather top where the clouds behind it are illuminated one very specific streak and the lighting source is actually a little fucked. Like, it's kind of hard to tell where the light's coming from. But that was by design. It creates a very dramatic picture. And then they recreated that in the movie. And then the final example they have is uh, how they used, it sounds like grading images, which is where you apply a, like a blue light to it. And it creates this weird contrasty thing. They did that for night scenes. And it looks like, and um, they have an example of Aragorn and Boromir talking and they have the ungraded image where it's just two dudes. And then they have the graded image where it's very ethereal and they kind of have this glow to them and it's all a little bit blue. And uh, I fucking hate it, but I'm pretty angry about how they overuse blue in movies to create drama. So. Well, and it looks like this image might be from around the time that they were in or just after they were in Lothlorien. That's true. And I know they did use a lot of blue in Lothlorien to create this kind of mythic, ethereal sense of elven kingdom in the trees. Mm -hmm. um, like once the sun sets in Lothlorien, you're like, oh, we are in blue, 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 and blue, bluer. <laughs> um, it looks like it's when Aragorn is talking to Boromir about what uh, Lady Galadriel said to him. Yeah. And and Boromir's like, I don't trust it. She was in my head. And they're having that conversation. And I know they use blue a lot at that point. Yeah. I mean, it does make sense for the elves. And I feel like I remember this is how Arwen looks most of the time. Is she's kind of just <laughs> blue lit and glowing. And Kate Blanchett rocks it as well. And I, I still don't like it. But it does make them look like statuesque and very removed from the real world yeah definitely of a different origin yeah definitely world yeah they're from across the across the water 
Uh, so the last thing that uh, Overthinking LRTR says is that the heart of Mordor is a barren, lifeless hellscape of volcanic rock, like a relic from the ages when the world was still being formed and life didn't yet exist. And then they finally reach Mount Doom, which one artist described as where the ring was made, which represents, in a sense, the moment of creation itself. Mm. Complete with explodey volcano photo. Yeah. I don't know if it's just me and the people I live with, but we were talking about Fantasia last week. And uh, I totally remembered the scene of the dinosaurs and the creation of the world. And it had the same vibe where it was like, it was all volcanoes for so dang long. I totally remember that Fantasia. And it's the same thing with the Mordor. And at this point, there is just no natural human or elf or dwarf or orc touch on what is created. There's just a little a doorway in the in the volcano for some reason and a pathway out to it like we're gonna take Simba up to Pride Rock and then you drop the ring off. If Pride Rock were, you know, with lava. Yeah. I find this an interesting connection between comparing this original point of creation with this hellish landscape because Mount Doom is meant to represent evil. It is a place of evil. And then, so then is Tolkien saying, like, the more civilized you are, the better, the more good you could you potentially represent? I don't know about that, because, I mean, it is an origin at the end. Mordor is scary. Mordor is scary and bad. But Mount Doom is a site of creation and destruction. It's not necessarily good or bad bad it has been used to create the ring which we don't actually really see ever in the movie maybe at the very beginning there might be a ring forging scene or whatever but that's not in mount doom explicitly and i kind of wish it was that'd be cool but mount doom in the movies to me it feels like a place of hope just because it's a place where you can trust that something evil will end Oh, interesting. I never associated Mount Doom with hope. I always associated um, the hobbits, the fellowship, the actions of people who wanted to do good as the source of hope, but not the mountain itself. I guess that's true. I mean, it's it's a neutral party then to me, but but it's such a thing that they've been looking towards the whole time. Like, it's the journey destination. And when you're done there, you're done. And then, ah, but see, is that necessarily hopeful if you know you're going to die? That's true. I don't you're know. Probably going to die. It's a duty, then, I suppose. It's very much a duty. Yeah. I mean, at one point, Sam, you know, Sam was the optimistic one, being like, "We're going to make it, Mister Frodo. We'll, we'll make it home. We have to save enough food to come home." And Frodo's like, "Sam, we're not. We're not. There won't be a return journey." Yeah, that's true. And they just get so desiccated throughout their travels of Mordor. Like they are scraped up, they are dried out, and yeah, they wouldn't have made it out of there. I guess I, I guess I'd fully take it back then. Mount Doom sucks ass, and it's, I mean, it is still to me a neutral object that has been used for evil, and at this point has succeeded in destroying said evil as well. But I guess it's never really a force for good. I think volcanoes could be creation or destruction, depending on how they're painted. Um, Mm -hmm. They are what creates the worlds above water. They are what builds islands. They are what continues to generate 
like land and space and fertility, but it's never presented that way. There's no point in it where it's like the end of Mononoke where like the volcano erupts and like leaves this whole spread of, you know, clean dirt or something for things to grow. It's just a bunch of fireballs falling from the sky. Well, that's because they don't leave clean dirt. They leave lava, which you can't, once it hardens, you can't grow anything in it. Not for it a long time. Dirt. Not for a very, very, very long time. Yeah. Have you ever been up on uh, Mount St. Helens? Yeah. There's some bits that are growing again. Not a lot. They come back. It just takes a while. It takes a long time. I remember watching a, a homesteading series on television, and this one on Hawaii had been caught in the path of the lava flow. And so they helped them basically rebuild. But by doing that, they had to truck in pounds and pounds and thousands of pounds of dirt and soil and compost to basically build a garden on top of the lava oh. because they were like, yeah, we're not growing anything in this. This destroyed, like they were in the middle of the lava flow and it destroyed their entire like 25 acre farm. Anywho, back to architecture. Yes. And, um, you know, you can chime in your thoughts about whether you think Mount Doom is uh, creation, destruction, neutral, or all of the above. Uh-huh. Yeah, just email us. Uh, a, B, C, or D. <laughs> yeah. Email us that. We'll totally know what it means. We are glitterinthegold at gmail.com. What did I say first? A is good, B is bad, C is neutral, and D is all of the above. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so, but, but, architecture, but architecture. But architecture. Um, I went and just Googled Lord of the Rings architecture, a historical. That was my Google search. And You're good at Google. Hey, you know what? Keywords. Uh, the first thing that came up was from our wonderful, awesome Journal of Tolkien Studies, which we referenced about Boromir way back when. Love these guys. Flip and love them. It was a 20-page paper. Oh my god, so. By Johanna H. Brooke. Yes, I read the whole thing. Good. Uh, volume 4, Issue 1, called Building Middle-Earth and Exploration into the Uses of Architecture in the Works of J.R.R. Tolkien. I really liked this article. She focused a lot on how architecture both influences and is a symbol of culture and what we could infer of the different cultures in Lord of the Rings from their architecture, which I'm not really going to focus on quite as much because that's a big deep dive. Oh, damn it. You want me to? Oh, I mean, I, like, there's, there's parts of it that are kind of obvious. Maybe this will be um, a part two. It might be a part two. That's fine. But she did, she had a, a nice setup of like explaining the architecture of, she looked at hobbits and Gondorians and Rohan. And elves, but I didn't do a lot about elves because it started getting long. Okay, um, this will definitely be a part two then. It's fine. Awesome. So she broke it down into their architecture and their like styles of architecture as described by Tolkien and then mm. broke that into realistically, what did we have and what could we infer from cultures by cross-referencing real culture and Tolkien culture. Beautiful. It was super interesting. So she says... There has been a general consensus among Tolkien scholars that certain peoples in Middle-earth are predominantly based on inspirations from historical periods and cultures, such as the Romans and Gondorians, Anglo-Saxon and Scandinavian influences on the Rohirrim, and a Celtic heir to the Elves. What has not necessarily been examined in these studies is how architecture shapes the inhabitants' and readers' experiences of Middle-earth. Architecture is used as a means of introducing Middle-earth and its inhabitants relating the unfamiliar to the reader in recognizable terms. Architecture is culturally loaded, and Tolkien appears to draw on this, using their architectural choices to help express the different principles of Middle-earth's races, 
as this journey through Middle Earth will show, architecture actually echoes one of the resounding messages of the Lord of the Rings, that of heterogeneity and homogeneity. Hmm. That was her thesis. That's a big thesis. Um, I know, right? I think it's interesting the Celtic heir to the elves thing. I, I honestly didn't get a ton of that. We've talked about it before, how they were based on descriptions of elves from Celtic mythology and stuff. But I'm thinking about it now just in terms of how they were portrayed in the movies. And I feel like the hair braiding stuff is probably the strongest visual cue to me that it was Celtic based. And in their architecture, they do use a lot of the overlapping branches, more of the leaves, mm. the, the nature kind of some, that look almost like the Celtic knots. Um, yeah. Not quite as intricate, but a similar weaving pattern. Okay, that makes sense. And she goes on to say that Tolkien had this theory of subcreation um, in relation to architecture. In his lecture on fairy stories, Tolkien quarrels with the presumption that fairy tales require the, quote, suspension of disbelief, end quote. Instead, Tolkien believed the storymaker makes a secondary world which your mind can enter. Inside it, what he relates is true. It accords with the laws of that world. You therefore believe it while you are, as it were, inside. And that comes from Tree and Leaf, page 36. Uh, mm -hmm. He calls this art fantasy or enchantment and acknowledges the difficulty that lies in the process of subcreation. The inner consistency of reality is more difficult to produce. The more unlike are the images and the rearrangements of primary material to the actual arrangements of the primary world. So the feeling of realism in Middle-earth lies in Tolkien's ability to balance fantasy and reality, and architecture is a facet of this sub-creative process. Hmm. Okay. So by thinking more intensely about the architecture of the space and trying to include details around that, it helps us get more immersed in the story. Yes. Okay. And Tolkien was trying to make a mythology of Britain, right? Yes. So it would make sense that he would take architecturally from the real world in order to really plant this mythology in an actual historical era that could be Britain. But he's kind of mashing them all together. Yes. All the different cultures that he believed were influences on Britain or that he just kind of liked. Precisely. Like Scandinavian shit. He's like, yeah, let's pull that in. Yeah, precisely. But in the way, it does make it feel more realistic because you can relate to it. You know, I'm thinking about it and the cultures that he pulls in are mostly from the languages that he studied. You know, he's oh, yeah, got that's, yeah. Latin and Greek and uh, Icelandic and Finnish and he didn't do Icelandic, did he? No, but he did do Welsh. Welsh and Finnish. And, and he knew some Celtic, I think. Probably. Mostly, mostly Welsh. Old English, certainly. Old English, yep. Yeah. And so he probably did his studies in those cultures, not just their languages, so he could get a better sense of what they meant when they talked about a specific piece of architecture or something. And I know he went to a lot of ruined sites and did translation. Yeah, on-site translation. That's cool as yeah. well. So he would have seen a lot of that as well. God, the ability to just like base so much on ancient cultures because you get to go and like touch them. That's such a good, oh God, I love that. That's such a good technique for writing, just getting close to the thing you're writing about. Totally. So we'll start with Hobbit Holes and oh, yeah. Hobbits in Slash the Shire. So Hobbit Holes, uh, Brooke says, blur the boundaries between natural and man-made, embodying the rejected modern assumption that civilization is built on top of the natural world. 
for hobbits would certainly be ranked um, highly on the list of civilized peoples in Middle Earth. In his essay on Hobbit Holes, Carl Kinsella, 2013, discusses how Shire architecture shares the ethos of the arts and crafts movement as, mm. quote, the landscape has become an integral part of the architecture, being essentially indistinguishable from the surrounding environment, end quote. So then I did some research about the arts and crafts movement, and Hannah, yeah. it sounds like you are familiar with this. Uh-huh. A little bit. So from my, from my research, uh, the arts and crafts movement was also known as Mission Style, and it challenged the styles of the Victorian era. Uh, it originated in the UK in 1860 and spread to the US in the 1890s and lasted through about the 1920s. The core characteristics of the arts and crafts movement are a belief in craftsmanship, which stresses the inherent beauty of the material, the importance of nature as inspiration, and the values of simplicity, utility, and beauty. Mm. Um, Ironically, the hardest part of the arts and crafts movement was finding how to create a large number of handcrafted items that could be easily replicated and that could be afforded by the masses. So kind of ironically, even though it was meant to challenge the styles of the Victorian era, it was really only the Victorian upper class who could afford such items, and it remained a luxury status. Um, The founders of the arts and crafts movement were William Morris, Walter Crane, and John Ruskin. Uh And most people might know William Morris because he founded Morris & Co. and started the creation of the craftsman-style houses, which are still built today. Ah, yeah. Um, So that's technically a craftsman house is technically from this era of the arts and crafts movement. So William Morris was protesting this idea that mechanization had just become a thing. It was everything was being mass produced and he thought that it had lost a lot of its meaning. But then how do you make something accessible that's probably going to have to be manufactured that still feels like handmade? It was kind of a catch-22 of a movement, but... yeah. It's hard to keep costs down when you're hand making stuff. You want to be able to pay people fairly and having a certain aesthetic and ideology behind something doesn't necessarily make it accessible. Which is why mostly the Victorian era luxury class afforded it. So, but that's the arts and crafts movement. And Big End kind of fits this irony in a lot of ways, considering that it was the nicest Hobbit hole in all of Hobbiton. And it was owned by one of the richest families in the Shire or had been built by one of the richest female brandy bucks. Mm -hmm. And Bag End is also noticeably Victorian. Uh, Brooke says this is partly because of the amount of windows. There's a lot of windows in Victorian era houses, um, and they represented status. And because Bag End is filled with spaces associated with a Victorian middle-class home with separate spaces for pantries, wardrobes, and dining rooms, etc., um, there's also a lot of material wealth that would be needed to fill all these spaces, which is another symbol of having money and status. Yeah, there's, they're really crowded, just like remembering. It's all like very pretty clutter, but it's, it's a cluttery situation. Yeah, it's a lot of like material goods. Peter Davey, who wrote an essay in 1995 about architecture in The Lord of the Rings, comments, the arts and crafts movement was of and for the Victorian upper middle class. The inhabitants of William Morris's visionary world have all the nice characteristics of Victorian gentlefolk. They are kind, generous, polite, energetic, moral, nationalistic in the best sense, intellectual, practical, comfort-loving, and fond of beauty, all characteristics that also belong to hobbits. 
Uh, so the rest of the Shire does not have quite the same cultural and architectural symbology. Uh, the houses are often two stories and they're above ground. They're residences and workplaces of millers and tailors and craftsmen and workers. And the only uh, like cohesive feature that ties a lot of Hobbiton with places like Bag End are that they all appear to have round doors and windows. Mm. And Tolkien actually had this in his sketches in his book, The Hill, A Hobbiton Across the Water which is a collection of all of his own, usually pen and ink drawings of what he thought the Hobbiton looked like. Yeah, I read something about that, how he illustrated the Hobbit. He does mm-hmm. a lot of little dragon drawings too, which are cute. And he made the map, he uh, did the map. He had some other really wonderful drawings. I remember as a kid of um, not only Bilbo and Smog, but of Gollum and Elaborn. The city and the lake. Hmm. I don't know that one. It's right near the Lonely Mountain, and it's kind of where you know when the the dwarves get all stuffed into the barrels and they go bobbing down the river to escape Mirkwood, and they end up in the town on the lake. Yes, like, yes, yes, yes. Okay, I can that, picture that's this. that place. The one where uh, Stephen Colbert was. Yes, that one. <laughs> So, moving on to the Rohirrim of Rohan, Brooke continues saying, It has been well established in Tolkien studies that the Rohirrim are modeled on the Anglo-Saxons, and this choice of cultural parallel is interesting when we consider the theory that Tolkien's works were attempts to devise a mythology for Anglo-Saxon England, as mentioned before. Uh, Their historical lineage of the Rohirrim are close kin of of the Beornians, which Mm -hmm. suggests the Beornians, so... The guy who turns into a bear. Okay. I'll take your word for the bear guy. He's like bear breakfast man. Yeah. And he has that big hall with the fire and the. No, I I don't know it from the books. No, this isn't a thing I know, but yes. Okay. Yeah. I can't remember if it's in the movie or not. It is not. (laughs) Oh, well, he's really cool. I know you've told me about him and I'm very into it. Bears and breakfast are my thing. Right. So (laughs) bears, really? Oh, Uh, I can like a bear. I'm not a gay man, but I can like a bear. (laughs) See, I was going about the gay man. Okay. Anyway, so that lineage uh, suggests a northern influence and is seen architecturally in the illustration of Bayorn's house, which was modeled very closely on an illustration of a Norse mead hall and shares Mm -hmm. similar features to Theoden's hall, Meduseld, such as the timber framing and central fire pit. Gotcha. Tolkien imagined Meduseld as where Theoden received guests or emissaries seated on the dais in his royal hall, uh, much in the same way that the hall Heorot is used in Beowulf, where the high king waited to hear the pleas of his folk. Uh, Metasel is also described in a similar fashion to Heorot, as other Tolkien scholars have identified, with pillars gleaming dully with gold and half-seen colors, Lord of the Rings, echoing the color of the steep roof plated with gold from Beowulf. Neat. Again, um, in Rohan, they also did use thatch roofs, which were much of use in Anglo-Saxon times as well. Yes. So with Gondor, uh, and it was interesting because Brooke also commented on the historical parting of ways between Rohan and Gondor, because they are technically related way, 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 way back when, but their architectural styles are extremely different. Hmm. And she says that this is probably because the Gondorians are descendants of the Numenorians, uh, who went to Numenor and then lived there before it sank. Oh. And the Numenorians were known for their craftsmanship, their seafaring, their shipbuilding, 
um, versus Rohir, the Rohirrim who stayed behind and didn't go to Numenor. Oh, that's kind of cool. The the thing in um, Minas Tirith, it kind of looks like the prow of a ship. Precisely. It's meant to, actually. In The Lord of the Rings, it's described as a ship's prow. Whoa. Uh, that dissects the city. So yeah, that was purposeful. Bisects the city. Bisects the city. Thank you. Dissecting the city is something different. <laughs> We're doing that, technically. Fair, fair point. Words. Thank you. Like scholars, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it. I love it. Okay. And so Johanna Brook makes an interesting point um, saying that by Lord of the Rings, Gondor is in a state of decline. Comparisons have been drawn between Gondor's dwindling empire and historical examples like Byzantium, Rome, and Egypt. And I guess Tolkien himself even mentioned this. Um, oh, that's really cool. Got it about Middle Earth are ruins of the civilization, such as Weathertop. Yeah. And you get the the statue that's like fallen apart and just his head is there. And Sam's yeah. like, oh, look, the statue, the king has a crown again. Mm-hmm. And then you have the two uh, statues guarding yeah. with their palms outstretched to yeah. show the, you know, how far, the, the, to demark the line, the boundary. Very Ozymandias of it all. Yes. Like, who the fuck are these guys? They were famous enough to have giant statues, but we don't know who they are anymore. Except they know the, we know who those guys are. They're relatives of Aragorn's from way back when, but yes. Yeah, so he has like a wallet full of them, of photos of them. Basically, you know, <laughs> taken in like a photo booth style. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so this would make sense with Gondor's architecture being more like a classical style. The Tower of Excelion, where the dais of the king and the chair of the steward are housed. So it's the place that you go in with the long hall with Pippin and Gandalf are walking down it. And then you see the throne and then you see... Um, Denethor sitting on the little tiny steward's chair. The baby throne. Baby throne. For babies. That's the Tower of Ecthelion. Yeah. And in Lord of the Rings, it is described as tall and fair and shapely, and its pinnacle glittered as if it were wrought of crystals. Mm. And Pippin says, he likens the tall pillars to monoliths, which is very Roman sounding, um, which rise to great capitals carved in many strange figures of beasts and leaves. Monoliths, to me, always evoke something like Stonehenge, though, which is kind of cool to think about. It's very much the English countryside thing. Mm-hmm. Brooke mentioned that Pippin might have said monoliths um, because it would be something that he never would have seen before, and it would have been a very strange sight to see these such columns. tall columns and wouldn't yeah. necessarily have a word for them. Out of stone, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the hobbits weren't huge stone builders either. They had like a mill or something, but most right. of their houses were, again set into the sod or wood if they were two stories there was an interesting little side note that i kind of liked from this article that connected gondor to the romans in a more of historical context she writes pippin notices in every street they passed some great house or court over whose doors and arched gates were carved many fair letters of strange and ancient shapes names pippin guessed of great men and kindreds that had once dwelt there Lord of the Rings, page 736. Without realizing, Pippin touches on a pressing social issue as the appendices note how, quote, the high men of the South married late and their children were few. Brooke goes on to say, to quote Tolkien scholar Ford, who likens this to the Roman Empire, Augustus's fears over the societal trend of childlessness and its impact on the Roman legacy. Oh, yeah. Um, With Aragorn, the citadel is filled with trees and with fountains, and its gates were wrought of mithril and steel, and its streets were paved with white marble, and the folk of the mountain labored in it, and the folk of the wood rejoiced to come here, 
and all was healed and made good, and the houses were filled with men and women and the laughter of children. Lord of the Rings, 947. Gondor is rebuilt by man, dwarf, and elf, and each race leaves impressions of their culture, be it the water and trees of the elves, the worked metal of the dwarves, or the white stone of the men, and all are united in Minas Tirith and in Minas Tirith's architecture. Nice. So I really kind of liked how she connected that both to the Romans and their history, but then also how in later years, architecture ended up symbolizing a sense of unity and a sense of peace after Aragorn's reign began. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah. The inclusion of many different architectural aesthetics is a really neat one. And I think probably is a really great signal whenever you get to see it in a city that cultures have come together here and been able to leave a mark. Which is what happens in a lot of big cities. Yeah. I mean, I I feel like whenever I've traveled to like London or Rome or Paris or New York City, Hmm. like, Yes, they had their own defining architectures, but then you can also see where the different immigrants or inhabitants kind of help shape the neighborhoods based on where they lived. And then, you know, it might have changed over time, but it's still there. Like the signs are there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that fingerprint left behind is such a cool thing to see. And I'm glad that they included that in the movies with these decaying cultures of the past, where is a signal of greatness that has been reduced, but doesn't necessarily have to go away entirely and can be rebuilt again um but rebuilt in a way that is more inclusive yeah so that's what i have about uh, the actual textual references that tolkien used to build his own architectural world and how that was supported by both alan lee's watercolors and then by the creation of the sets of the lord of the rings movies as well was alan lee explicitly hired for the movies yes he was he was he was part of their design team like, there's some really wonderful, wonderful uh, footage in the extended edition DVDs of Alan Lee, like, doing all of these watercolors and just, like, sitting there and painting. And then Peter Jackson will come and be like, I like that. Yes, let's use that. And then he'll, like, go back to painting. I'm like, no, I'm thinking it more like this. Like, especially, if, I think, for the the trees in Lothmorian, they went through a couple different revisions of how the, the stairs and the buildings going up the trunks of the Melorn trees should look. Oh my God. I want to watch this Bob Ross video of him painting. That sounds amazing. Yes, it is. <laughs> we should just watch the extended edition special effects DVDs together. I absolutely want to do this. It's like 12 hours total, but it's so <sighs> worth it. That's a day, my dude. <laughs> uh, it'd be more than one day. I don't sit still. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Could barely get you to sit through the extended editions of Lord of the Rings. I know. I've seen them so many times and I'm like, I can quote this in my sleep. It I is fun it. doing the quoting part. I like I like that where I just know a line and I'm like, oh, here we go. And then you get me inserting, but it wasn't like that in the book. Yeah, that's true. That's why we started this whole podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> I wanted to know what it was like in the books, but without actually reading the I hope I'm living up to that expectation. I mean, I'm enjoying it immensely. I'm mostly enjoying it for the Tolkien scholarship that's coming up too. Like the amount of thought that Tolkien put into these and then the amount of thought that other people put into deciphering Tolkien or connecting something that maybe he subconsciously had created with this, which is, you know, a lot of what English majors do as a former English major myself. Um, But anyway, 
thank you for all of this. So I'm excited to hear part two about this whenever we get around to it and talk about the Elvish stuff. Yeah, we um, can totally we can totally do that. Um, the yeah. article I read didn't have much about dwarves, which I found a little bit interesting. Yeah. Unless she was like, I just don't know where dwarven inspiration was, so I'm not going to even try. Or there might just be less scholarly work on it. There's so little about dwarves. I'm devastated. I love dwarves. I wonder if that fits with any of the Pratchett stereotypes. Because they're meant to be hidden and secretive and like, I don't know. I mean, we'll get to that Pratchett stuff soon. But anyway, thank you all for listening to Finding the Glitter and the Gold. This has been a very exciting one for me as a person who loves architecture and history. If you want to email us and give us any feedback or say, wow, this was really cool or anything like that, you can get to us at glitterinthegold at gmail.com. We are available on all major podcasting apps. And if you could like us, rate us, write us a review, subscribe, all of that, we would really appreciate it. Share us with your friends if you think they'd be interested. And yeah, thanks again for listening. See you on the Shire side.